the reading this morning following our uh, sermon series on 1 Peter. I'll be reading Peter, 1 Peter 5, 1 to 14. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those who are entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bob. Good morning. We've heard lots of good news this morning. Do you want me to give you some more? We have a new computer coming. Uh, it's in the post. So the production team are doing a great job. But, uh, you know, next week, you watch. You watch. Um, you know, normally I would skip off uh, and forget about a little verse like this at the end of uh, what Bob just read out to us, at the end of that little passage. Uh, it kind of just comes up at the end there. You, you kind of think, yeah, whatever, and move on. And, you know, normally I'd, I'd forget about it. Um, but, you know, for two reasons I want to start with it this morning. The first is, is in the season of COVID, it's important for me to say, and this is probably the only time I'll ever say something like this, but we are strictly not following this biblical command today. And actually, I want to say, I think it's probably the most Christian thing you can do today for one another is, is not give one another a kiss the other reason I bring it to your attention, though, is because I think at the end of Peter's letter, he is actually summing up his entire aim right there in that little practice. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Um, if you think about it, how we greet one another when we go into any particular community is actually a way of focusing in on the distinctive characteristics of that community. You go to a sporting event or something, you know, you'll get a ticket, uh, you know, clipped off or scanned or something. You go to a business meeting, someone will shake your hand. It tells you about the formality of that meeting. 
You come to church, Paul says, in the first century, Peter says in the first century, pre-COVID-19, he says you'll be greeted with a kiss of love and it tells you something about the people. It tells you something about the community. Uh, As a child, I grew up and every Christmas, just on Christmas Day, for the whole day, we had Aunt Daphne with us, with our family. Aunt Daphne was a lovely old lady. You've probably heard me talk to you about her before. And she'd join us for breakfast, for lunch and dinner on that day. And uh, how did I know she was family? She would give me a kiss. It wasn't a very comfortable kiss. There were bristles. But I knew she was family. The funny thing is, is a couple of years you know, later, I grew up and I found out, actually, Aunt Daphne wasn't an aunt at all. She wasn't related by blood. She wasn't married into the family. I think she started off as a neighbor, a next-door neighbor of a neighbor of my grandma or something. But she became family because we greeted one another with a kiss. As I was thinking about that story, I thought to myself, actually, there's a little echo in that of what our relationships as a church should be like in that story. We are strangers. We don't know each other. We're not related by blood or by marriage, probably. But we become a community together. We're brought into a relationship with one another. We're made family with each other. And Peter, at the end of his letter to the early church, wants to say, I I, want to remind you about how you should treat one another. You should treat one another like family, with a kiss of love. And so I want to look at this passage with you today with that in mind about what our relationships with one another as a church should be like. And, And Peter, surprisingly, starts off with the leaders of the church and what leadership should look like, how leaders should treat us. And so why don't I pray for us as we dig into this. God of all grace, we ask you this morning that you might show us how to be a Christ-like community, how to respond uh, to Christ-like leadership and how to be Christ-like leaders. Show us even this morning how we are not like Christ and how to become that community you desire us to be. For, For Christ's name's sake we ask. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, Peter is uh, finishing the end of his letter to the early church, and he is giving some final instructions to them. And he speaks to three different groups in particular. The first are elders, the second are those who are younger, and the third is to all of us. And it is interesting, like I mentioned, that he started with elders, because typically in his day, uh, you wouldn't. You'd start with instructions to the slaves, and then you might move up the social ranking a little bit, and then... When you want to speak to the leaders, you know, you'd probably excuse everybody else and then you'd start speaking to them. But actually, Peter starts with the leaders, which gives us a hint into what, how he wants leaders to treat the community. Now, elders is not about old people, as I've kind of explained. It's actually about a position in the church, leadership in the church. He's speaking to those who have responsibility over others. And what's interesting as well is you've got to remember this is first century stuff, and so there weren't professional leaders per se necessarily. Most pastors might have been bivocational, that is your pastor might have also been your plumber. And more than that, the church probably met in homes and so in small groups. There's, a, you know, there's certainly no collars or anything like that. What's really interesting to note here from the beginning is that Peter probably has in mind many of us 
who lead a church in some capacity. It might be a small group, a connect group. It might be a particular ministry that you have oversight over. Uh, It might be kids or music or some other area of influence within the church. Peter probably has in mind people like you who have influence. Nevertheless, even regardless of that, the characteristics that he's about to explain about leadership apply to any of us who have any sort of leadership anywhere in our lives. So my first point actually is don't switch off. As we talk about elders, this is not about the old, don't switch off when we talk about leaders because it's about you who has influence or will one day have influence over someone. And the first thing he wants to say to leaders is this, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. The first thing Peter wants to talk about is the privilege of leadership. He wants to say this is God's flock under your care. That is, as you look around, this is not your paddock. These are not your sheep. You do not own them. God owns them. So there's a privilege in Christian leadership. On the one hand, I find this idea extremely um, alleviating of a lot of stress. It's a relief to me because I think at the end of the day, God is the one who cares for us. On the other hand, I find this heightens the responsibility. These are God's precious possession, his chosen people, his sheep. Uh, Recently, I was doing a bit of a spring clean. You know, there was a council clean-up not too many weeks ago, and I was going through a bunch of old stuff that I've collected over years and years and years and decades. There was one big box that was covered in dust. I blew the dust of it. You might have have experiences like this. I opened it up, lots of great memories in there. But there were some CD cases, and I remembered a friend had tried to give me a musical education by letting me borrow about a hundred of her CDs. Do you remember what CDs are? Yeah, okay, good. And, uh, and in there, there were some CDs, and there was a little post-it note on the front, and it said, CD not inside. I'd return to her the CD case without the CD. I don't know whether you know the feeling of losing or damaging someone else's property that you don't know how to replace. They are CDs. These are God's people. A shepherd's sheep, a king's people, a father's sons and daughters. There is a privilege to Christian leadership. The second thing that Peter wants to talk about actually is the purpose of leadership. Okay, it's important and we've got to be careful, but what are we doing? What are we here for in our leadership? There's this wonderful image that Peter gives. He says, be shepherds. And it's not just beautiful because it conjures up a picture in our mind or that it suits an agrarian-based society. It's beautiful because it actually picks back language used in the Old Testament, way before Peter's time, way before Jesus' time, about how God described the leaders of his people. He called them shepherds. And there's a wonderful passage in Ezekiel chapter 34 where this prophet is talking about bad leadership. And he talks about these bad shepherds. And it's an excellent chapter to read alongside 1 Peter 5. I'd encourage you to do that today. He writes this, this prophet in the Old Testament writes this, he says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat, you clothe yourselves, but you do not take care of the flock. He says, you've not strengthened the weak or healed those who are ill or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. 
You've ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there were no sheep. And then this is what God says. This is what the Lord says. He says, I will rescue my flock from their mouths. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. And earlier in Peter's letter, we've read this about ourselves. Peter says, you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In other words, this promise that one day we would have good leadership over us, people who truly cared, has come true because God has come to take care of his people and we've returned to our true shepherd. But then Peter goes one step further to call his leaders in his in his church, shepherds themselves. That's an amazing thing because what Peter is saying is the formation of Christian community and the leadership that God gives us as a church is actually a fulfillment of God's promise to seek out scattered sheep and to care for them. Did you get that? Leadership in the church is actually a fulfillment of God's plan for the world. A number of important things hang off that. The first is to say that, you know, there is no such thing as being a Christian that is not under some kind of leadership. Being a Christian that is outside of God's community because God's community with leadership is his purpose and plan in the world. The other thing that's important to say is that leadership itself is not a curse. I know we've all experienced problems with leadership. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Peter is saying, God is saying, leadership is not a curse, it's not a problem. So when there is bad leadership, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Rather, this text, in fact, becomes for us a, a kind of critiquing mechanism by which if leadership is like Christ, we can affirm it. If it's not like Christ, we can reform it. So we've got to dig into this text even a little bit more. Well, what is the problem in leadership? Like I mentioned, many of us have experienced it. Uh, Paul, uh, Peter kind of outlines some problems in leadership. Three problems he points to. The first is that sometimes leaders lead out of a feeling that they must do it. Secondly, leaders lead because they feel like they can gain something for themselves in it. And thirdly, Leaders lead because they enjoy it. They want to domineer over people. What I think this all sums up into saying is that bad leadership happens when leadership becomes about ourselves and not about the people and not about God. Bad leadership happens when leadership becomes about us, ourselves. Leading because you must is because you feel like people have an expectation on you, you don't really want to do it, but you're going to save face you're going to do it to make people like you and appreciate you. It's not a good, good reason to lead. Leading out of dishonest gain is about thinking, ooh, there's something in this for me, personally. Not a, not a good reason to lead. Lording it over people, that comes from pride. That comes from thinking, you know what, I'm pretty good at this. And people need to know that I'm pretty good at this. And so I'll boss them around so they see me in this role. Peter says... Actually, there's a better way to lead. And in this last line there, we see actually what we crave for in good leadership. See, I think we actually we crave leadership and we crave good leadership. And good leadership is about being an example to the flock. 
What does that mean? Um, you know what it means when somebody is not practicing what they're preaching, don't you? I hesitate to mention this analogy. I'll explain why in a moment. But just last week in the news, there was an example when the Premier of New South Wales, who I need to say is a friend of St. Stephen's, uh, I don't in any way want to cast any more shadow on her leadership or anything like that. In fact, I think to her credit, her leadership credit, she came out and she said, I made a mistake when she told us to isolate and didn't isolate herself. What was our problem? Our problem was that she wasn't practicing what she was preaching. She wasn't being an example for us. We want leaders who don't just tell us what to do, but do it themselves. And so what is the model? What is the example that a Christian leader might set? That's a great question. And Peter actually answers it in verse 4. He says, you have a chief shepherd. He says, Christian leader, you have a chief shepherd. You have somebody to follow, an example to follow. You know, I think leadership in our day and age is measured in all sorts of ways. We might measure somebody's leadership by looking at how many followers they have. We might measure somebody's leadership by thinking about their experience. Oh, look, they've led this business, they've led that business, they've done this thing. We might think of somebody's, we might measure their leadership by their achievements, you know, what they've been able to do, turning an organization this way to that way. But Peter says to us, Christ-like leadership, leadership that models God's leadership for us, is leadership that is measured by how much we are like the chief shepherd. Your leadership is measured by your conformity to Christ. That's, in fact, how Peter can say in the very next verse, in the same way, you who are younger, that's any of us who are under some kind of leadership, submit yourselves to your elders. Because he's saying Christian leadership is, and Christian submission to leadership is not about blind following. He's not saying you have to follow someone no matter how they treat you or whatever they say or without understanding, without thinking about it. In fact, he's saying, you're privy to everything I've just told the leaders. And more than that, Christian leadership is about submission to Christ. So I'm asking you to submit to, to those who are submitting themselves to Christ. And in fact, what you submit to, what you follow, is their example of submission. That's why you can follow. Well, what is Christ-like leadership? What is our chief shepherd like? You can see we're just digging further and further into this text. We're moving through it very quickly. I hope you're following. Peter says, this is what Christ-likeness is like. And he tells not just leaders to be like this, not just those who are submitting to be like this, but he says all of you, leaders and followers alike, this is what Christ-likeness is. He says all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility. Humility is Christ-likeness for us. Humility is how we measure leadership. Humility is how we measure our submission to leadership. Clothing in antiquity uh, was a status symbol. I had to laugh. I picked up the paper uh, last weekend, and there's a picture in there of Mike Kennan Brooks, who's the CEO of Atlassian, one of the fastest-growing companies ever. 
and uh, you know, a billionaire, and he's wearing a baseball cap and a daggy T-shirt. And I just thought, actually, that's, that's a symbol of status in our world. You can do whatever you want, you know. Get your photo t- taken for the paper. You can look however you want to look. But in the Greco-Roman world, clothing was a, a real status symbol. What you wore told people your, your status in society. You can imagine the clothes of a beggar. And you can imagine the clothes of someone elite. From a distance, you can tell where they stand in society. But Peter says to all of us, wear the same clothes. Wear the same clothes. He says there's no social hierarchy in the church that determines your pattern of behavior. Leaders can't act any differently to those who are submitting. We all clothe ourselves with humility. As many of you know, on Monday nights I play on a futsal team. The first thing we do when we get there is we put a bib on. And that bib immediately tells us we're all on the team together. We're all defined by that bib. Likewise, humility defines our community. Humility uh, needs a bit of a definition, I guess. And John Dixon, the Australian uh, author and historian, defines humility like this. He says, humility is the noble choice to forego your status and to deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. It makes me think about Jesus, actually, and his example to us. Christmas, today is the first day in the traditional calendar for Advent. Christmas reminds us of Christ's humility as we remember God becoming flesh. And it makes me think of the Apostle Paul's comments in Philippians 2, where he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant and being found in human likeness. You know, I think we might think we're pretty good at humility. That's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? A bit of a paradox. But I actually think even within our church, even within, you know, within Australia, in a very egalitarian society, I actually think there's still a lot of social, socially driven constructs in terms of how we relate. And I think if God is calling us to being equals, and if humility is the defining character of what it means to relate to one another, I think that might change who we talk to, even on a Sunday. It might change how long we talk to them for. It might change how we talk to them. It might talk the kind of range of information that we share with that person. Clothing ourselves humility is going to change us, leaders and followers alike. Peter has an example. There is an example, actually, of how Peter himself, as a leader, shows us his humility in this text. There's a wonderful little moment here, actually, in verse 1. Four little things. This is Peter writing, remember, Peter, Peter the Apostle. He says, firstly, to the elders among you, I appeal to you. You know who Peter was? Peter was the guy to whom Jesus said, you are the rock on whom I will build my church. Peter could have used that authority to say, hey, I command you 
to clothe yourselves with humility. Peter says, I appeal to you. Do you know what that means? That means I come alongside you as someone who lives in the same world as you, and I want to encourage you to see my point of view, such as his humility. Second, he says, as a fellow elder. No, he's not. He's the apostle. He was given the privilege of experiencing Jesus' ministry, of seeing his life, his death, and his resurrection, of being sent out to start the church. He could have used his authority to say, as boss, I'm telling all you little shepherds out there, he says, I'm a fellow elder with you. Furthermore, he says, as a witness of Christ's sufferings. You know what that means? It doesn't mean that he saw what Christ went through. It means, actually, he knows the hardship, the suffering of participating in the sufferings of Christ that we talked about last week. Peter knows. He's down in the ditch with us. He knows what it's like to be here. He doesn't shy away from those sufferings. Finally, he also says, my pay packet is the same as yours. He says, we're all going to share in the same glory. Peter is showing us his humility here. I want to ask the question as we finish up this morning, how, how can Peter do this? Think about who he is as an apostle. Think about even the hardship that he goes through. How, how does he continue as a leader? How does he humble himself like this? Well, I think it's fitting at the end of Peter's letter that we reflect on uh, a story from Peter's own life. Last week, Prash reminded us of Peter's moment with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was being arrested to be put on trial. And Peter responds to that situation with a knife. He's ready to fight. But as we turn the pages of the story, we find out that Peter follows Jesus to his trial, and he's standing in a courtyard, and he's warming himself by a fire in that courtyard. And somebody recognizes him and they say, hey, weren't you one of the disciples? Didn't you follow him? And Peter says, no, 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 not me. And moments later they ask him again, surely you were with him. No, no, not me. And Peter denies Jesus. Peter is his best friend, his closest follower, the, the one last standing. And Peter denies him a third time. Turn the pages of the story and there's another fire. And it's actually Jesus who's put on breakfast on that fire for Peter. And in that moment, Peter, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter goes, you know I love you. And Jesus says to, to him, feed my sheep. It happens three times. And what, Peter, what Jesus is doing is not just reaffirming their relationship. Peter is reestablishing Peter's leadership. He's reinviting him and reinstating him to feed his sheep, to lead his people, and he'll show his love to Jesus by being a shepherd. Peter is finding in this moment that his power for his leadership, his power actually for his humility, doesn't come in never failing, doesn't come in his abilities, but comes in God's grace for him. And that's why Peter finishes, the God of all grace church, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Peter made the mistake that we all make in all of our relationships. 
to warm ourselves by the fire, to protect ourselves, to look after number one. That's the mistake we often make. Whether we're in leadership or in submission to leadership, we want to look after ourselves. But our submission to leadership, our leadership, our relationships with one another have to be driven not by who we are and looking out for ourselves, but have to be driven by God's grace to us, his forgiveness to us. That's what Peter knew. He'd experienced for himself God's grace in that moment. He was so secure in that that he didn't have to lead to have a title or position. He was so content in that that he didn't have to pursue dishonest gain in his leadership. He was so loved and affirmed by God's grace to him that he could follow Christ's example of submission. You know, our vision as a church uh, goes something like this, to be a church beautiful, diverse and large. But that's not it. It's not that simple. Our vision statement is this, to be a church made beautiful. That's what it says, a church made beautiful, diverse and large by the gracious work of Christ. Because our community is not about us doing it for ourselves or doing things in our own strength or disappearing when we fail one another. It's about depending on God's grace and it's about who he is making us by his grace. Let me pray for us. God of all grace, we do thank you uh, that you have revealed to us our chief shepherd and we know that he serves and loves us in humility. Lord, we ask that you would make us a community that looks more and more like him, that builds itself on grace. We ask that we would make you the center of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.